So tonight's the last class in this Buddhist studies class. We'll begin up again in early January. I'm not sure. I think it might be the second Monday in January. And we'll be continuing the sequence of the three characteristics. We began the summer with impermanence, on to dukkha, next is anatta, the impersonal, ownerless nature of conditioned experience. The Buddha said, whether perfect ones appear or not, there remains this element, the structure of things, this certainty in things. All formations are impermanent. All formations are not satisfying. All formations are not self. Another time, another common statement, what is impermanent is suffering or unsatisfying. What is unsatisfying is not self. I think I read early on in the course that uh, this book from the Dalai Lama, The Way to Freedom, the Dalai Lama talks about how even though we've considered ourselves the most precious thing in the universe for a very long time, more precious than a Buddha, still this clinging has not led to perfect happiness. Sort of interesting. So the kind, you know, each of us in our own particular way, but the kind of self-importance. In, in remember, thinking we're no good is in a way its own kind of self-importance. You know, that strong view. But just that self-obsession hasn't led to happiness, stable happiness for us. And as we reflect tonight in, in our small groups, um, <clears throat> let's... Let's pay particular attention as we're thinking, listening to the talk, and then meeting in the small groups, really looking at and sharing about that distinction between suffering and unsatisfactoriness. Because the Buddha didn't say, you know, that in life you will always be a suffering being. What he said is, conditioned experience, no matter who you are, whether you're a Buddha or an ordinary person, conditioned experience, by its very structure, will be unsatisfying. It won't be a refuge. It won't be a cause for true happiness. It can be pleasant, you know, or unpleasant or neutral, but it can't make a somebody happy conditioned experience. It's inherently unsatisfying. And then it's just a question of what do we do about that? Do we make that into a problem and amplify it as this this great existential crisis like life isn't delivering the happiness that I'm certain that it should? And it always sounds grim when we say this, you know, okay, so that means that in life our job is to somehow face the facts that conditioned experience isn't going to be satisfying and we just have to resolve to be okay 
with the limited unsatisfactory nature of phenomena and not make a big deal out of that because that just makes it worse. That's how it sounds. And so in, in practice, <laughs> this is where patience comes in, you know, because a lot of our sits, it's sort of in that mode, like this isn't making me happy necessarily. I mean, we, even if you get a lot of samadhi in your practice, after a while, even samadhi isn't, isn't that satisfying. It's interesting. People who really get into, you know, they just have been practicing long enough or they just have a particular talent for getting concentrated. And, you know, initially it's like, oh my God, it is so nice to have a tranquil mind. So nice to experience states of real peace. But after a while, it's interesting. It's like people stop doing the practice. Even though they could be really peaceful, it's like they're not interested in it after a while. And it's very interesting. <laughs> Unless they really start to suffer, then they think, oh yeah, maybe I'll, I'll do some again. But then they give it up. I mean, we already sort of, all of us sort of know that anyway, because there are things we could do that would make us more tranquil. I mean, just on a simple level, there are ways we could eat that would make us more comfortable, right? Or there are ways we could take care of our lives. We could sleep in a more regular way, or we could, you know, behave better in different ways. And we'd get the direct result. But somehow, these different ways of having more pleasant experience aren't that satisfying, ultimately. We know that. But the problem is that we haven't made a systematic study of it, so we're always wandering into something else that we're getting the initial juice from because it's new. It's the pleasantness of it is new. It's a little enchanting. And in a really diluted way, we think maybe this is nice enough. Maybe this will really take care of me. This new TV show or this you know, new relationship or this new whatever. Buddha has a lot of graphic images. One is about a dog tied up to a post. And when and I have a more direct experience of this, uh, Wynn's brother, when right when we were visiting New Jersey, or right before we got there, I guess, maybe the day or so before we got there, they had rescued a dog at I think it was just wandering the neighborhoods. I forget if it was in the pound or what. But anyway, they rescued a dog. It was a little bit neurotic dog. And uh, they had to go do something for the day. So they put it outside on a leash because they were visiting Wynn's mom and not their home. And and the dog, you know, I guess it's not uncommon, somehow got itself caught up in the leash and killed itself um, in that activity. And it you know, these sorts of things, even more so in some ways with animals, just non-human animals, just breaks our hearts because it's, you know, we see it as so unnecessary. And, uh, but this is our, our way around the limitations of sense experience. It just, it just doesn't seem right because there's pleasantness, very real, and, and some of it, of course, is very wholesome pleasantness in life, like the pleasantness of a, har- a harmonious family or friendships. 
So because there's very real pleasantness, we just are certain in an unreflected way, uh, un, sort of not, not deep way, we're pretty certain that there's got to be, this pleasantness has to lead to something satisfying in a long-term, lasting way. I mean, something simple like when, you know, you slip into a nice hot tub that's at the right temperature. It's so nice for a while. Or you sit down in a comfortable chair after being on your feet for a long time. Or you take the backpack off you've had on your back for three hours. Or, you know, that's such a nice feeling. And that first flush of pleasantness it really is satisfying. It really feels like, you know, it's a taste of something. What it, and the reason why it's so confusing, what is it a taste of? With the greed or the aversion that was wrapped up with, you know, whatever's happening right before that pleasant wave came in, that disappears. So in a way, it's, it is a little, it has the flavor of nibbana in a surprising way, maybe. Simple, pleasant experiences has the flavor of Nibbana because the greed of really wanting to be in the hot tub, that tension has gone away when we slip into the hot tub. That we experience the mind, that's really the pleasantness. It's the mind is temporarily free of greed and aversion. It's not the warm temperature of the water or the nice taste of the food or the lack of the pain in the legs when we sit down, as much, I think, as the release from wanting that relief or fearing that we're not going to get that relief. Like I was just on the retreat, leading the retreat at Holy Spirit, and you know, one of the obvious things, obvious experiences for us when we're on retreat is just physical pain. We can be sitting there and... Uh, it's like we would pay a lot of money for the bell to ring. I mean, that would be a great fundraising activity. <laughs> so maybe a couple of you want to work with me on that. It's like uh, they do that sometimes in, in different organizations, you know, like uh, you, who, it's almost like a bidding war, or you know, and you get a dinner with President Obama or something like that. We could get like, you know, who gets to end the sit sooner? You know, for a hundred dollars you get to end a sit this time, you know. For twenty dollars, just a few minutes before. Sometimes we'd really pay a lot of money though, because it's excruciating and we know it's gonna feel so good when we can move our body or we can get out of the room or whatever we're drawn to. The Buddha says in that sutta, the uninstructed worldling just keeps running and revolving around form, feeling, perceptions, volitions, and consciousness of mind and body, the experience of mind and body. As one keeps on running around them, we are not freed from them. We are not freed from birth, aging, and death, not freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, not freed from suffering. But the instructed noble disciple does not regard form as self, feelings as self, perceptions as self, 
volitions as self and consciousness as self, one no longer keeps on running and revolving around them. And as we no longer keep running around them, we are freed from them, freed from birth, aging, death, freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, despair, freed from suffering. What's interesting about dukkha is, uh, or just I should say, because again, dukkha this is a, a broad word. It includes just like physical pain, but it also includes the underlying unsatisfactoriness, limitedness of experience, conditioned experience. And it's interesting just in terms of physical and mental pain. It's like we really avoid it. But when we're in the middle of it, like in the middle of a crisis, there's some juice to it too. I was talking to somebody earlier today and uh, she was mentioning um, one of her sons got in a bike accident and uh, they couldn't stop the bleeding. They couldn't figure it out. It took them a while. I forget how many days, but it was like a handful of days. Many trips to the emergency room. Eventually they had a, they, the surgeons figured out that Behind the eye, uh, there was a ruptured artery, and they had to actually move the eye to take care of it. Um, but anyway, she talked about how how powerful her practice was during that week, or however many days it was, and like how she was able to really show up and uh, in a beautiful way, and a fearless way, and a nimble way and uh, not having a lot of the mind being really sort of clear and just doing what needed to be done next and not a lot of extra stuff. And then after the crisis was resolved, it's like everything fell apart. (laughs) So one of the things about dukkha, it's like we're afraid of it but we're also really energized when we're in difficult experience because it gives our life meaning. Like, how am I going to manage this pain? It feels so relevant and important. And we have a mission. We have meaning. And our and it's like, it that actually draws a lot of wholesome qualities. Have you noticed, like, for example, when we have physical or mental pain in our meditation period, it's like we're motivated to note it. You know, and to like practice not resisting it because it just hurts so much more. It just works so much better if we're really on top of our practice when things are difficult. And we're actually enlivened. So it's interesting about our study of dukkha. We really want to make the transition as we reflect on, reflect on dukkha from this the immediate dukkha of physical or mental pain to the more generalized dukkha of the basic limitations and unsatisfactoriness of even pleasant experience. Because initially we may avoid dukkha, but after we practice for a while, we kind of like challenges. I mean, that doesn't mean we really like them, but like we look forward to some of them. Oh, I'll do a longer retreat. You know, I'll challenge myself. I'll do a longer retreat. Or this retreat, I'll do eight precepts. I won't eat afternoon. 
you know, I'll resolve not to read or talk, you know, I'll be a little bit more, and I'll, I'll just deal with what comes up, you know, the resistance, I'll work with it, it's just resistance. So, as you share in the small groups tonight, you can look at those times in your life where things were pretty smooth for you, not too dramatic, and just a kind of melancholy or kind of feeling like, what's the point? Or just that underlying dissatisfaction, the mind being hungry for some meaning, hungry for an experience to entangle itself with, to get dependent on, not content. And the thing is, you know, we have these archetypes and we can use, like, just, I may not be old now, you know, I, some of you know I just spent a lot of time with my dad since uh, late June with his cancer and his death about two or three weeks ago. And, and uh, you know, I'm not, my body's not in that kind of crisis. But it's in a crisis nonetheless. I mean, <clears throat> being 55 is its own kind of, you know, adventure with more just body pain and more limitations in the body. And we can, we can highlight that sort of more ordinary experience. Some of you know Ramakrishna. He's a famous Indian saint. He was really influential in my early years of practice. I read a lot of his stuff. He died in the, I don't know, maybe around 1880 or something like that. Um, lived very poor, um, uneducated person. He, he was a great devotee of, I think it was Kali or Durga, one of the female expressions of the divine in Hinduism, a very, very fierce expression of the divine. And uh, he was like a great bhakti. Bhakti is this devotional path. Lived and breathed Kali, his devotion. You know, and basically you're externalizing sort of an inner sense, inner intuitive sense of freedom. And uh, as he was kind of dealing with his very powerful mind and his very powerful devotion, one night I think he was just sitting uh, in the monastery or the ashram where he lived and uh, looking over some water and a, a vision but didn't seem like a vision to him. You know, the Divine Mother arose there, this great being. And uh, out of her womb just were flowing countless different beings, one after another, being born, human beings, animals, every kind of creature, just flowing out of her. And and he was, of course, enraptured uh, with this vision this experience, and then the mother started picking up the newborns and eating them with blood dripping down. <laughs> Nobody does this better than the Indians, in terms of in terms of really bringing out the shadow side that we don't 
want to include. I, you know, Christianity's not so bad either when you think about <laughs> the main image is somebody being crucified. I mean, that's sort of an interesting religious, spiritual symbol to kind of put front and center. And uh, anyway, so, and uh, just that, you know, that object of devotion and just seeing so clearly that the sort of creative, that, that life includes death. And this is really, I don't know if you know much about Kali, but this uh, feminine expression of the divine, it's, it's interesting. She, she's often dark-skinned, and uh, I guess that represents like before time. Like she's before time, came before the other prominent male deities like uh, Shiva and Vishnu and uh, Brahma, I think are the other main three. And so, yeah, she comes before and uh, is, is kind of the sort of beyond time. And so this, this idea that, uh, you know, life eating life, that that's, that's the world of conditioned experience. It's just churning in that way, and it's not a mistake. And like I mentioned last week, it's these, you know, whether we're using something ordinary, like just the ordinary aging process, even when we're not in a medical crisis, or just the ordinariness of always having to do something with our apartment or our house. There's always something to fix, always something to do. Now we got to, you know, we got these, first in the spring, you know, Wynn and I, we had to go to the store, we had to buy all those plants, and we had to put all those flowers in the pots. And now if we leave them out, they're going to crack during the winter, so we got to put them somewhere, and they're so heavy. And now they're all filled with dirt. And now like, do you dump the dirt out and bring them in the basement, or do you chance it, putting them in the shed? And it's like, and it's getting closer and closer to a deep frost. And, and that's just one of many problems. And then that has nothing to do with our to-do list from work or, you know, just so many things. And we can, really, we can use these archetypal images of life eating and life. You know, really go online and look at some of the images of Durga and Kali, garlands of, of skulls. And I think, I think Kali actually holds a, uh, the head of somebody. Um, and blood. Yeah, and I think they often have their tongue out. And <laughs> I mean, basically, everything that gives us the EBGBs, I think that's the point. Because it's like learning how to be devoted to that, to open our hearts to that, to have reverence for that, then maybe we're getting a little closer to understanding dukkha. As a teacher, as a gateway, it's like the non-acceptance, the trying to govern what can't be governed, trying to make something that's unreliable, reliable, something uncertain, certain. You know, the people who have really good relationships with their friends and their partners are people who know something about this. Either they're people who have that devotional quality in not such a developed way, and they have their ideal of the person is so strong, it doesn't matter who the person actually is, and they're 
just in love or devoted to their idea of the person. And I think that can work to some degree for some people. Or you really, we really uh, open to the messiness of relationships, to the unreliability, the ungovernableness of it. And we're really appreciating the other person as a movement of nature, as a basically a reflection of ourselves, also as a movement of nature, also unreliable, also messy and limited. And we appreciate having that reminder close because they're a good reminder. You know, they reflect back what we need to see. They keep us grounded in the truth, in the, you know, in the ground of, of change, this great beast of change. Some of you know in the, the Buddhist wheel of life, especially in the Tibetan um, expressions of that, we, we used it in, for those of you who are in the karma and dependent origination class, we, we looked at some of those wheels, and you can find these online too, that the whole wheel of life is in the jaw of a beast. So, and you know, of course, Hinduism and Buddhism played together for a long, long time in India and then in places like Nepal. After it, Buddhism left India or got wiped out of India, in the northern Himalayas in Tibet, they continue to interact. Dick Cornfield's wonderful book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, which I guess he did not choose that title. That was interesting. He has a chapter, chapter four, The Heart as Mother of the World, the Gate of Sorrow. In this section, he's talking about um, the gates of awakening. You know, there are different gates of awakening, so... This is what I've been talking about the last couple of weeks, um, that dukkha can be a gate. It's not the only gate. So he talks about the gate of sorrow, which is this chapter four, the gate of emptiness, the gate of oneness, the gate of the eternal present. And he talks about that famous discourse. Some of you know after this big night under the Bodhi tree, the Buddha's deep insight, then he hung around the tree meditating for around 40 days, I think, and including one seven-day set. And after that particular long set, uh, during those 40 days after his deep insight, his awakening, he opened his eyes and with his very refined attention, his psychic abilities, he just got what all beings are doing, wanting to be happy, trying to be happy, or doing exactly what causes unhappiness. And really seeing that he likened that to people being on fire with greed, anger, and delusion, which is the basic metaphor that he used for teaching for the next 40-some years as he wandered around northern India. He used that basic idea of our minds are inflamed with greed, anger, and delusion. And the whole point of the spiritual path is to extinguish those flames of greed, anger, and delusion. So what are the skillful ways that these flames of greed, anger, and delusion can go out?
This is from that chapter. There are times in spiritual life when it feels as if all the barriers we have erected to shield ourselves from the pain of the world have crumbled. Our hearts become tender and raw. We feel a natural kinship with all that lives. The cries of the street children echo in our mind, images of terrorism and racism, ecological destruction, poverty, and slavery fill our consciousness. It's as if our consciousness has broken open to the struggles of humanity and the earth itself and the earth itself. We may feel that we are in a charnel ground. We may feel the suffering of countless generations and we recognize that there is no escape from this. So this is a real insight and as he's saying in this chapter, it's a gateway to awakening. It's like, uh, I think Jung talks about this too, this opening to something specific from our life can really open us to something that's more universal. Like even something as simple as relaxing with knee pain or back pain. And then the mind just begins to understand what it is. Initially, it's just my knee pain or my back pain and I don't like it and I wish it weren't happening. But eventually, the mind just begins to understand the truth of it, which is, this is really more about life isn't working. Life isn't matching my expectations. Life can't be controlled. Life isn't really here to match my expectations. Life can't be trusted to deliver happiness. Conditioned life can't be trusted to deliver happiness. Conditioned life Conditioned experience will never make this heart happy. And then when we get to that level, it's just like uh, we've, that thread, you know, just following the truth of our experience, it just leads us to every human experience or every, not even just human experience. I think we really drop in or open up to the enormity of that sentient experience of Things not being the way the mind wants them to be. You know, the more we practice, the more we study physics, the more we realize that, you know, this whole idea of separation, that, you know, I've got this globe of my reality that's somehow encapsulated in this body and and fundamentally separate from everybody else through time, through space, is just not true. It's so interesting. I think why we like reading about physics is that these really smart people are telling us a vision of reality that blows our mind because it's so unlike how we've been conditioned to understand this reality. And in our meditation, we begin to notice this. You know, we, we begin to notice certain synchronistic, psychic, unusual phenomena that that just don't make sense in terms of our religion of locality. You know, I'm here, you're there, and there's like a real division. Well, it's just not the case. The same with time, like what's happened back then or what's happening in the future. So in terms of opening to pain, we're really touching something that's beyond our normal back pain or ordinary back pain or aging process or even the loss of a loved one. 
and we're we're coming into something very archetypal and primal and real and able to teach. And what does it teach us? Well, it teaches us, it teaches the heart that it's possible to let go. In fact, it is the cause for letting go. When the heart, when the mind sees conditioned reality for what it is, letting go happens. It's not like I have to let go or, you know, we got to convince ourselves to let go. It just will happen. We feel this, you know, very distinctly in the arising of compassion. You know, the more we open, what can open to that? Well, it's the compassion that opens to that. And when we're caring about all beings, we're not, it's like uh, the mind isn't caught in the suffering. There's some freedom from that. I'll just end before we break into small groups with uh, something from Ajahn, Ajahn Chah. We looked at this article early on in the course. This is near the end of that article. And this is on our website if you haven't read it yet. Why do we, why do we find ourselves here in this condition? It is because of birth. As the Buddha said in his first teaching, the discourse on turning the wheel of Dhamma, birth is ended. This is my final existence. There is no further birth for the Tathagata. So what does it mean to be really practicing Dharma? We should practice correctly. There are so many methods of meditation you can practice, but the point is that it should be leading you to letting go, to cessation, to making an end of grasping attachment. It's just like people in the world earning their livelihoods in various ways. There are farmers, business people, civil servants, engineers, factory workers, producing all sorts of goods. And it all, in it, and it is all summarized as earning a living. Here it is the same for us. We call it practicing Dharma. So where is the Dharma? The entire Dharma is sitting here with us. When you've gotten old, don't think that something's wrong. When your back is aching, don't think that that's some kind of mistake. If your stomach hurts, don't think there's something wrong. If you are suffering, don't think that's wrong. If you're happy, don't think that's wrong. All of this is dharma, or nature, we could say. Suffering is merely suffering. Happiness is merely happiness. Hot is merely hot. Cold is merely cold. It's not that I am happy, I am suffering, I am good, I am bad, I've gained something, I've lost something. What is there that can be lost by a person? There is nothing at all. Gaining something is dharma, losing it is dharma, being happy and comfortable is dharma, being ill at ease is dharma. It means not grasping onto these conditions, but recognizing what they are. If you have happiness, you realize, oh, Happiness, it's not permanent. If you are suffering, you realize, oh, suffering, it's not permanent. Oh, this is really good, that's not permanent. That is bad, really bad, not permanent. They are all just that much, so don't hold so firmly onto them. 
The Buddha taught about impermanence. What is permanent? Only that this is the way things are. They don't follow anyone's wishes. That is a noble truth. Impermanence rules the world, and that is something permanent. This is the point we are deluded at, so this is where you should be looking. Whatever occurs, recognize it as right. Everything is right in its own nature, which is ceaseless motion and change. Our bodies exist thus. All sankaras, intentions, conditioned phenomena exist thus. We can't stop them. They can't be stilled. Not being stilled means their nature of impermanence. If we don't struggle with this reality, then wherever we are, we will be happy. Wherever we sit, we are happy. Wherever we sleep, we are happy. Even if we get old, we won't make a big deal out of it. You stand up and your back hurts and you think, yeah, that's about right. It's right, so don't fight it. When the pain stops, you might think, ah, that's better. But it's not better. You're not yet dead, so it will hurt again. (laughs) This is the way it is. So you have to keep turning your mind to this contemplation and not let it back away from practice. Keep steadily at it. And don't trust things too much. Trust the Dharma instead, the nature. That life is like this. Don't believe in happiness. Don't believe in suffering. Don't get stuck in following after anything. So that's a little of Ajahn Chah being, getting on his soapbox and being a preacher for us. It's nice to hear that because, like he says, you know, it's very easy to get complacent about impermanence, like think we already get it. We know it's impermanent. But to really work at it, like when we have ordinary happiness, just realize, oh yeah, it's just this, and it will change. And when we have our ordinary experiences of unhappiness, oh yeah, it's just this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.